Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today it's with great pleasure that my guest is Professor Nazmi Jube. Nazmi is Associate Professor of History and Archaeology at Birzeit University, but more importantly, is a Jerusalemite. And I'm sorry, Nazmi, but I have to uh, uh, read aloud your date of birth, 1955, because that gives us the sense of the history you experienced and live directly and you're gonna tell us about. Nazmi has published extensively in, in many uh, outlets. Uh, Obzuli is also a part of the uh, Jerusalem Quarterly team. So you can find a lot of his articles on the Jerusalem Quarterly. Uh, Nazmi is uh, an archeologist by training, but he's also interested in history, politics and architecture. And I just wanna mention that, that he has been the director of the Islamic Museum at the Al-Aram Sharif uh, complex in Jerusalem uh, a long time ago, but I think it was a very significant experience between 1980 and 1994. Nazmi, thank you and welcome. Thank you, Roberto. So without further ado, the first question as usual, and I feel like uh, you're gonna tell us a lot about it. Nazmi, what is your Jerusalem? In other words, what is your connection with the city? I don't know. I never had uh, 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 other deep experience with other city. Uh, I lived for a while in Germany for seven years in uh, a small town uh, uh, called Tübingen, where I did my PhD. Otherwise, I was always living in the city. It is part of me. I am part of the city. Uh, I cannot separate myself from the city. I cannot. I cannot imagine myself living elsewhere. It's not only the beauty of Jerusalem. It's not only the history of Jerusalem. This is my family, my town, my friends, my childhood, 
and uh, it will be my tomb too, hopefully. Uh, uh, the city is, uh, whenever you grow up, wherever you uh, uh, study it deeper and deeper, uh, you put yourself in a very complicated situation. It doesn't mean that the conditions of the city are so attractive to live, to live in it. I wish that the holiness of the city would be elsewhere and the city remains just a normal city uh, and uh, God should reside elsewhere uh, in order to have a normal city with normal people. It's not too easy to live in such a holy city where more than half of the people of the world believe in, in its holiness. It's a big burden on us, uh, normally human beings, who just want to live a, a normal life. It doesn't mean that I do not respect the, this attachment to the city. Of course, I'm proud of it too. Uh, but it's a burden on, on the people living on it. Sometimes you, you can see uh, uh, it's a blessing to have tourism, but it's not a blessing to have a flood of tourism uh, 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 walking all over your body in the city. And uh, you are just um, uh, a, a form of uh, a witness of a certain period. Uh, you are not uh, a piece of anthropological uh, a museum where people will look at you uh, as a reference. Uh, so uh, in spite of all of that beauty, it's not easy to live in such a city. Because you mentioned this, I really want to ask you, you know, many people read accounts of travelers to Jerusalem produced in the 19th century, mostly British Americans, and they always write about people in Jerusalem, as, as you just mentioned, if they were aliens, right? And uh, I, I was wondering, is still the case nowadays? Do you feel like uh, you have travelers coming into Jerusalem and uh, People coming, they still look at Jerusalemites as some, some sort of uh, aliens, like, uh, oh, these are like biblical characters from a long time ago. Is that still the case? I think uh, it's a little bit different, but uh, in general, yes. Uh, uh, it's, um, you know, a lot of uh, foreigners coming to Jerusalem are coming in form of a religious trip, pilgrimage. And uh, those are coming with biblical background. They read the Old Testament and New Testament, they prepare their visit to, to the city, They're trying to localize every site mentioned in the Old or the New Testament. And suddenly in these sites, there are people there who could be uh, uh, witnesses of, uh, of that period. Uh, you are meeting such, such people and of course, there are also normal tourists who are uh, 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 with no religious reference at all. Uh, but you are meeting people who are really uh, do not understand how come you are a modern person, how come that you are, according to their definition, westernized. Even your clothes is very normal. Uh, so some some of them are shocked from the, this reality. Remember, Roberto, that um, in the nineteenth century. The Holy Land was drawn, pictured uh, uh, without people mostly. Uh, it was just empty as if the, uh, the, the, the land was empty uh, because people did not want to see uh, uh, really uh, uh, normal people living in this, in this land. They want to see Jeshua, Jesus Christ walking in the streets of Jerusalem. 
So whenever we are reflecting that image of the city, then we are part of it. But if we are too much European, too much Westernized, then we do not fit there at all in their perception of, of, of the city. It's, it's really uh, astonishing uh, uh, reality in Jerusalem. Uh, you, you can see uh, they are astonished when they see a woman with Palestinian embroidery or a sheikh with his turban. Uh, that brings in their mind certain imagination of the, of the city and suddenly they caught something, huh? something uh, uh, in their hands that proves the truth in the, in the, in the holy book. I must say that uh, I never visited Palestine uh, even before my academic uh, uh, you know, career in that way. But I, I remember the feeling, uh, particularly the first time I visited Jerusalem, that was back in 2000, you know, going into the Holy Sepulchre in particular. And, and I remember, you know, this feeling like looking around people like, oh, like, you know, there's a connection. But at the same time feeling like, well, you know, it was 2000 years ago, right? So... But, but I guess for a lot of people, it's, it's still prominent, this idea, you visit Jerusalem, therefore there must be a connection to a religious belief. I want to ask you something, as I mentioned earlier in the introduction, your date of birth, 1955. You were born just uh, in this period where a lot of things happened in Palestine and particularly in Jerusalem, and you experienced firsthand a number of changes. So can I bring you back to your childhood? You also wrote about it. And uh, tell us about your memories. How was Jerusalem growing up in the late 50s, in the 60s, and obviously the trauma of 1967, when the city was captured and occupied by Israeli forces? Some changes. I was living again. So many changes in this city. Uh, uh, I, I don't mind to have changes. Changes not always bad. Uh, I was born actually in the old city, in the middle of the Jewish quarter. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, the Jewish quarter was a mixed quarter before 1948. And most of the pro properties in the Jewish quarter were not Jewish properties, were leased to Jews. Uh, so even in the same building where I was born, uh, there were a Jewish family living before. Uh, uh, b besides my family and other families, you know, it is not a house, it's a house complex where several families are living as neighbor or around a courtyard. Uh, but I did not witness that period because in my, uh, I was born in 1955 and uh, the Jews had to leave the old city in 1948. Therefore, I was born uh, post uh, uh, actual uh, co-living, I would say, uh, in the same house. But there were other families, Christian, Armenians, uh, Muslims, living uh, together in the same building. So I was, I was born there. Uh, my, my first experience in life was the old city. The city walls were the limit of my world. Outside the city walls, we have nothing to, to, uh, to see. Uh, there is, everything was uh, concentrated in the old city. My school, my first school, the shop of my father, which is, was a, a, a spices shop in the chain street, Babis Silsili. And uh, uh, all my work was concentrated between these areas. Uh, in 1965, uh, my parents built a new house for us, 
just 200 meters outside the Dung Gate, outside the old city, 200 meters. Well, a small villa with a beautiful garden, which uh, upgraded our uh, social life dramatically uh, from an overcrowded house in the old city to a house for, for us alone. And the most astonishing part of it is we had we got running water. You know, in the old city, we didn't have a running water. We used to pick up the, the, the water from fountains, water fountains, and to carry it to everyday home. Suddenly, we have uh, running water. I had my first shower in life in, in the new house. Uh, you know, we used to, to bath in the old city in the traditional way, sitting on a chair and pour the water on your head uh, with your hands, and you have to heat your water, etc. Suddenly, we had a modern uh, house. Uh, so uh, in 1965, which is an amazing story, I heard that an archaeologist, a British archaeologist, is looking for a school pupils to excavate uh, archaeological site in Jerusalem. Uh, so I joined forces very quickly. Uh, I was 10 years old. And uh, I was so lucky to work with the most prominent and most famous uh, archaeologist ever worked in Palestine, Kathleen Kenyon. Uh, so she digged uh, up uh, Jerusalem, and uh, I was I worked with her for two seasons, and I have a very good memories with her. Damn, uh, uh, Kathleen Kenyon uh, uh, very quickly became a friend of mine. Uh, she took a lot of time to explain to me uh, 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 the different strata that we uh, excavated. Uh, my first school was um, on the northern wall of the Aqsa Mosque, you know, on the Haram Sharif, on the northern wall, uh, on the Via della Rosa, that was my school. Even my classroom uh, window was overlooking the Dome of the Rock. So it was uh, a fantastic location. Uh, in the time where we were living in the old city, I was just uh, going down from home to uh, Babis Silsila Road, ch Chain Road, and then entering the mosque, and along the western wall of the mosque from inside, getting up to the, uh, to, the to my school. When we left uh, the old city and lived in Silwan, Wadi uh, Hilwe, which is uh, uh, outside the Dung Gate, I was coming inside the Dung Gate, to the uh, Mughrabi Gate, which leads to the Aqsa Mosque. From the Mughrabi Gate, I took the same road up to, to school. But afternoon, I had to take another road because uh, my uh, I have to go to my father's shop in order to get uh, uh, whatever he wants to send home from goods, uh, vegetables, whatever. And uh, then coming back from his, uh, from his uh, uh, shop, down again of chain street uh, uh, and then through the Mughrabi quarter, the Moroccan quarter, uh, uh, crossing it from the beginning until the end and getting out from the Dung Gate. Uh, uh, so this is uh, the geography of my child childhood. Uh, uh, Jewish quarter, chain, chain street, El Omariya school, which, uh, uh, which is on the northern uh, uh, border of the Aqsa Mosque, and then uh, we we expand our geographic relationships with with the with Silwan. 
So the first uh, time I, I ever learned the swimming was in the pool of Silwan, in the pool of Siloam. Uh, there I learned how to swim. Uh, so what, uh, what is for a lot of people history and archeology, span it was for, for me a daily life. I have uh, uh, too many uh, uh, childhood experiences in the old city. For instance, the tops of the buildings, the roofs of the buildings were our great uh, playground. So we, you know, most of the buildings were con are connected. We know also where are the intersections uh, uh, where we can cross from, from one neighborhood to another. So we used to, to run from on the tops of the buildings, hundreds of buildings where our, uh, uh, the ceilings of these buildings were our playground. Uh, uh, also, it, it, it didn't lack of a lot of adventures and, and, and discoveries. Uh, I remember two important things that I, I wish I can do it again. One is um, one day the, the, uh, the ground in the chain street fell down. Uh, a deep, I would say, section uh, was opened and I jumped in it and I saw a street below the street with old shops. And maybe I was also in the sewage system, which goes back to the Mamluk period. I wish I can do it again. Other time I had an experience of discovering the, the tunnel, which is called now the Western Tunnel. Uh, I went in this tunnel several times from several points. The kids in the Mughrabi quarter knew the openings which leads to, the, to that tunnel. So I went with them several, several times. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, these are uh, some experiences which were maybe uh, uh, influenced my engagement uh, later in the cultural heritage and history of, of the city, which was not really my, my first uh, priority. Uh, my first priority to study was chemistry. And you can imagine which I, I began to, to study chemistry and uh, until I discovered that this is not the subject that I want to spend the rest of my life doing it. Uh, you know, you have also experiences related to human beings, not only to stone and history and archeology. span uh, Before 1967, so many Muslims from uh, the whole world were coming to visit Jerusalem. So you could see Indian Muslims, Afghani Mus Muslims, you could, you could meet Mughrabi Muslims, Algerian Muslims, it's uh, Turkish Muslims. You, so you, you meet as a child so many nationalities and you celebrate with them in the Aqsa Mosque because the Aqsa, the Aqsa Mosque was our playground. Uh, uh, it is the place where I did my homework because I didn't have electricity at home, but electricity was available in the mosque. Uh, so it was like the traditional learning uh, I can tell you that um, really uh, fantastic experience, especially in the Easter also, where we have a lot of uh, Greeks and Cypriots coming to Jerusalem in masses. And there were, uh, uh, there were very little uh, number of hotels in the city. So they were accommodated by people at their houses. Uh, uh, so mo most of the houses, especially in the Christian quarter, were converted into guest house. For, for the pilgrimage uh, sake coming from uh, the, these areas. Uh, as a child, it was not really uh, uh, 
uh, uh, enormous thing to have um, so rich experience with so number of people, different people, uh, 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 different cultures. You look at their clothes, how they look like. You look on their uh, their language. Uh, uh, you try to exchange with them some words in order to understand them. I mean, I was so lucky to be exposed to, to so many cultures in a very early years of my, of my childhood. I can speak endless about this childhood, but one, one thing I have to, to, to tell you. In the Jewish quarter where I was born, Palestinian refugees from West Jerusalem and from villages west of Jerusalem were part of the neighborhood. They placed the Jews, they lived in the houses which were before where the Jews were living in the old city. And, they took me several times to the, uh, to the walls of Jaffa Gate to look on West Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, I was 10, 12 years old. They were pointing to their houses, you know, because they were living in a very catastrophic conditions in the Jewish quarter. It was a slum. And uh, uh, most of the houses were half destroyed uh, so the refugees were living there, where they pointing to very beautiful houses in the horizon, telling me they were living there. I didn't understand the complexity of the situation. Uh, the, uh, you know, Jaffa Gate was a block with the stones at that time between 1948 and 1967. So I was exposed also to the drama of the refugees in a very early age. And I knew some of them were telling me stories how rich they were in, in their houses in West Jerusalem, and suddenly they are living from the help of the honor one. Uh, you know, uh, and really that uh, uh, touched me uh, uh, as a child very deeply. Yeah, and this is the complexity of the story. When you hear about the Jews who left uh, uh, Arab countries after 48, particularly from Iraq, Syria, and they arrived uh, to the newly created state of Israel, and you know, from this rich status uh, that they lived in, you know, as fellow Arabs in the Arab countries, and then they were sent to this uh, shanty town in the south, or you know, these uh, slums, uh, or, or even around Jerusalem. It's interesting how you have these parallel conditions of all of these people moved, uh, and they didn't want to observe. It's not that exactly what they were looking forward to uh, the, the victims of uh, other people's choices, right? Uh, the politics, the ideologies. And I always found fascinating this kind of parallels where you have these people, uh, but also in terms of ethnicity, because here you have the stories of Arabs, regardless whether they're Jewish or Muslims or even Christians, but they all have been displaced. And, and, and to me, as I worked on uh, history of particularly the British Empire in the region, always remind me like there are all of these uh, different levels that affect uh, you know, populations. And here you are, you have Arabs, regardless of their religions, paying the price for other people's choices. Uh, I do not uh, undermine the, uh, the suffering of uh, other people. Uh, but let me tell you that um, uh, what hurts in our case that the people were living a few hundred meters from their houses, not in other country, not in the other continent, in the same city. 
that hurts the people were looking and they are still looking on their houses in West Jerusalem, saying, this belongs to me. And we, when we come to talk about Sheikh Jarrah, this is actually the story. You know, a Moroccan Jew uh, left another continent. I don't argue now, now whether he, will, uh, he left alone or expelled, I don't know. It, it has to be discussed case by case. Uh, and I'm not an expert in that. But in this case, they were expelled from just uh, to 200 meters from their houses, and they couldn't go back. And uh, uh, and they were looking at their houses every day, you know. And uh, and, and that, uh, the the most famous story that I know about it is um, I don't know whether it's famous, but uh, ex president of Bizet University called Gabi Baramki. <laughs> Gabi Baramki. Uh, uh, house is just on road number one. His house now is used as a museum, okay? And he was living across the road on the other side of the road and couldn't get back to his, to, to his house. And he was looking at his house every day for, I mean, for decades. And when the Israelis occupied East Jerusalem, he thought that automatically he will go back to his, to his house. But he was denied the right of crossing the street in order to reach his house. I mean, this is the, the painful sto story that so many refugees uh, uh, came directly to the West Bank, just a few meters from their houses and fr from uh, the, uh, their villages, and they are still waiting for, for justice. I am, not, I am not against justice for Jews of Iraq, Jews of, of Morocco. Uh, they have to solve their problems with these countries. I have a problem with my problem that I do not, I denied my right to, to return in the same city, city under the same jurisdiction. You know, we are Jerusalemite living uh, unwillingly, but living uh, uh, under the Israeli jurisdiction. And the Israeli jurisdictions applying the, the law, the same law in two different ways. One way, the right of Jews to return to their houses in Silwan, in the old city, in Sheikh Jarrah, elsewhere. The same law is denying the Palestinians in East Jerusalem to go back to their properties. This is uh, this we cannot compare with Iraq or with Morocco, uh, history of Jews. And uh, you're absolutely right to remind that. I mean, there's a, there's a tragedy of displacement that is common to a lot of people, but there is this extra layer when you talk about Jerusalem and Palestinians in general, but Jerusalem in particular, where literally you can see the properties, you can see the dispossession, and, and I wanted to go there, this law uh, of the 1970s, which essentially allows Jews or Israelis, but better say Jews because the, the, the word is very specific in the law, uh, with the right to occupy properties that, have, that were owned in the past by Jewish families, but the same is not available for Palestinians which as you pointed uh, right correctly, given the fact that the city has been, shall we say, reunified, even though this is problematic, but it's, you know, with the annexation of Jerusalem, again, ideally they created one single entity, then the law should be applied to everyone, but that doesn't happen, right? The case is also worse than that. Palestinians of, in Israel, who has Israeli citizenship, are denied of getting back their properties 
you know, the most famous is the two villages in the upper Galilee, which called Ikrit and Bir'am, which were evicted after the war, not during the war, after the war, after the settlement of the borders, if you, if you want, for security reasons. And they have in their hands decisions from the Israeli Supreme Court of Justice that they have the right to go back to their houses. Until now, they did not manage. I, I'm, I'm telling you that this law is one-way road. It is a, a law allowing Jews to resettle wherever they used to settle no, no, and denying the others the same right. This is a clear-cut uh, uh, law of apartheid and uh, of, of discrimination. There is indeed, I mean, this huge issue. And, uh, you know, some other people argue that there is an incremental approach uh, that is visible, like slowly, slowly, the conditions have been created in order to essentially act on this. And uh, and I agree with that. There is an incremental process, but there's also the clear cut, as you mentioned, at some point, you know, that's what it is. And we have to call it with the right names. This is apartheid. This is segregation. And that's what it is, particularly when it comes to Jerusalem. I was personally living in Sheikh Jarrah, uh, I was at the Kenyon Institute that you mentioned earlier, you know, the Kenyon archaeology. Uh, I was living there, you know, when I was at the very beginning of my PhD, on and off between London and Jerusalem, when the story of Sheikh Jarrah broke out, when uh, I remember the first settlers going, moving into a, this house, and then all of the uh, that kind of demonstration, but at the first beginning was not even clear what exactly was happening, because it was so fast and uh, people didn't know much exactly what was happening obviously other than the people involved and all of a sudden Sheikh Jarrah you know became this uh, focal point uh, about properties but also from my own perspective about history because here you had Jewish families settlers because these are settlers claiming ownership based on this law uh, connected to the fact that possibly Jewish families, and we know that with a good degree, the Jewish families were living there, obviously close to the uh, tomb of uh, Shimon al-Sadiq, Simon the prophet, Simon the just. But then it became all of this legal battle about uh, were they owning, were they renting? And I agree, and I remember we already had this conversation on, on a different level, uh, but it's not really the, the, the discussion whether they're owning or they're renting. This is about occupying someone else's house. There are people living there, right? So yes. what's the story of Sheikh Jarrah? I mean, can you give us a sense also of the neighborhood? How did it come about? And then what's the main issue here? Well, the main issue is occupation. There is no other issue. Uh, it's not a fight about the properties. I will agree tomorrow uh, uh, that if the Israelis will prove that these buildings or this plot of land belong to Jews before 1948, I don't mind to, to allow them to go back to their properties. That does not mean more than five minutes. Bring your paper. The people who are occupying now the buildings will be evicted. Uh, but this is... Uh, uh, we ask for justice for the same law. The, these people who are living in these houses are refugees expelled from their homes in Jaffa 
and in Jerusalem, and some of them even from Haifa. And they were settled there in empty land uh, in, in an agreement between the international law representative, which is the UN, represented by the UNRWA, in agreement with the country which you used to have a jurisdiction at that time on the land, which is Jordan. Okay, they agreed, the UN agreed with Jordan that they want to settle some of the refugees in, the, in houses to be built in their names on that plot of land. Okay, countries have the right sometimes, even occupier, to confiscate land for certain purposes. <clears throat> you know, it's okay. You know, you build houses, sometimes you build roads, sometimes you build hospitals, schools, you need the land as a country. So at that time, Jordan uh, wanted really to get rid of refugee problems in Jerusalem. Okay, one way was to, to, to settle some of these families in, in that plot of land. I will agree immediately that maybe it was, I don't, I don't, I'm not a jurist to, to tell you whether it is true or not true. I will, <coughs> I will argue that uh, uh, these people, <coughs> refugees lost their properties. If you want to take their houses now, because the, 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 the land is Jewish <coughs> or belong to Jewish organization at that time, and I know what's the relationship between that Jewish organization at that time in the late 19th century and the current settler, settler movement. I, I know some of the, of the owners uh, or, or inheritance of the owners of, of these houses said they did not take our signature. We do not agree to the expulsion of, of the Palestinians from that area. So we agreed to, to give it back to its owners, whatever their names is, Moshe, Yitzhak, Navon, whatever their nom, names. At the same breed, these Muhammad and Ahmad living in that area to go back to their houses. It is that simple. Uh, we are not going to fight. I have uh, a very long article about that, uh, 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 the history of the site. Uh, I think this is irrelevant, but it was just to create the background for the reader to understand what's going on. Sheikh Jarrah is a prominent Palestinian and maybe the most prominent Palestinian neighborhood in East Jerusalem outside the city wall, uh, where you have a concentration of international organizations, uh, consulates, etc., They are all concentrated in that area, hotels, schools. Uh, and that area be, was for us a form of a center of services, uh, even cultural services, etc., were concentrated there. It is now attacked from all sides by settlement activities on the top of the Sheikh Jarrah by the Mufti house, the Jerusalem Mufti house, the, uh, the famous Sheikh Amin al-Hajj Amin Husseini, his house was confiscated and considered as a, a absentee property where the, his family, part of his family is still living in Jerusalem, but he is an absent, absentee. His house was confiscated as an absentee. Jordan did not have the right to confiscate an absentee property in Sheikh Jarrah to build the houses for the refugees. But the state of Israel has the right to confiscate the Hajj Amin Husseini house and land because he's an absentee. I, I think this is um, the discussion about ownership and property is irrelevant. Here is a, constant, uh, is a discussion about colonialism and using your own law 
to impose it on the colonized in order to, to colonize it more and more and deeper and, and deeper. Sheikh Jarrah is now uh, uh, surrounded by settlements. Uh, it, it is disconnected slowly from the northern part of the, of the cities uh, through uh, settlements. And now there are, you know, there are different settlements in East Jerusalem. Some of them are uh, 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 disconnecting the West Bank from, from Jerusalem. Others are disconnecting Palestinian neighborhoods from other Palestinian neighborhoods inside Jerusalem. Some of them are between the Palestinian neighborhoods. And some of them are planted inside the Palestinian neighborhoods and others are inside the same house. So you have different le levels. Those who are inside the neighborhoods and inside the Palestinian houses, they are not really normal settlers. Mostly they are very sick people, uh, fanaticers. Uh, they are uh, mostly employed by certain movements, paid to, to settle there. And the most prominent story is, uh, which the whole world was watching, is Yaakov's story in Sheikh Jarrah, you know. Uh, uh, he said, if I do not take this out, other, others will take it, as if the house is, uh, 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 has no owners, and he found it, uh, you, you know, on, on the moon. This kind of settlers that we have inside Sheikh Jarrah, who are really paid to settle there for ideological reasons and uh, for, uh, I would say, uh, ethnic cleansing uh, a, a process. Sheikh Jarrah is an example uh, of what's going on deeply in Silwan, but people do not talk about Silwan much because luckily in Sheikh Jarrah, you had the whole international representations there. Uh, so it took place under their eyes. The media was so interested in the story as well as the Palestinians who are living in that area is a form of pity bourgeois. They are not uh, uh, really the poorest Palestinians and they are very educated, so they could present their case. But Silwan, uh, what's going in Silwan is a catastrophe, uh, which will follow us in the coming few years, where really uh, the Israelis are trying to, to displace people who are living in slums. You know, Sheikh Jarrah, it's a lofty, beautiful neighborhood. But in Silwan, it's, it's the most overcrowded refugee camp. It's not a refugee camp officially, but it is worse than every refugee camp in the West Bank. And the people are living in a very poor conditions, physically, psychologically, socially. They are very poor people. They are really, they are all living below the poverty, the poverty line. And the Israeli state do not have empty land to settle Jewish settlers, except in these slums among these poor people. I mean, uh, they are destroying uh, uh, really uh, on daily basis the human beings li living in Silwan. And uh, the Israelis who are living in these inside neighborhoods uh, uh, settlements are not the best Israelis. They are not the Israelis of Tel Aviv. Uh, they are not the Israelis of Haifa. Uh, they are ch the, the chosen people who are living there. So this is the Sheikh Jarrah. Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. But you know, we're talking about Silwan and it made me think about a recent experience. So... Last time I was uh, in Jerusalem, 
few months back, I, um, I was in the French Institute, which is located uh, uh, close to the German colony. And so I called the taxi because I had to go back to Sheikh Jarrah, to the Kenyan Institute. And uh, uh, the taxi driver uh, asked me if it was okay to go through Silwan. He was a Palestinian taxi driver and said, well, of course. So we drove through Abu Tor and then from Abu Tor basically through Silwan, which is a shortcut. But then I understood why he asked me to, if it was uh, fine to go through Silwan, because despite I've been there many times, I must say that I saw the conditions <coughs> changing so rapidly. I was like, what's going on in here? I mean, there was no room for the car to go through. It really felt cramped with uh, vehicles and people and, and everything, materials. I, I felt like I literally, as you mentioned earlier, I, I, was on, I was on the moon, I was somewhere else. And then all of a sudden you finally make it down, down the hill and you're in Sheikh Jarrah and here is another, is another city, is another place. So I think there is this disconnect and people don't know about it. People don't yes. see Silwan because again, as you mentioned, there's no media attention, but the real drama is really unfolding in Silwan. Uh, what happened uh, uh, after 1967, uh, uh, the Israelis became in charge of us, of our life, of our movement. We were living uh, the annexed part of East Jerusalem to Israel is 72 square kilometers, which is two-thirds of the total size of municipal Jerusalem. Okay, two-thirds is located in East Jerusalem, and one third in West Jerusalem, okay, which was not the case before 1948. Uh, before 1948, 75% of Jerusalem was in West and only uh, less than 25% was in the East. They changed it in 1967, they expand the city on the coast of the West Bank. So we got a huge city. The number of Palestinians were living in East Jerusalem in 1967, were 70,000 Palestinians. In the whole 20, 72 square kilometers, just 70,000 Palestinians. Now, the number of Palestinians grow up rapidly. You know, we are a third world uh, community. Uh, our uh, growth is quicker than the Israeli. What happened that the Israelis began to settle in East Jerusalem through confiscating land. What is left for the Palestinians in East Jerusalem from the 72 square kilometers is less than 10 kilometers, square kilometers, which is actually about 13% of East Jerusalem. The rest, 87% of East Jerusalem is confiscated. Half of it was for settlements which means the land for the settlements is three times more than the land available for the Palestinians. And the rest is green services, whatever they call it. What happened to the 70,000 Palestinians of 1967? They became about 370,000. So the 370,000 were supposed to live on 72 square kilometers are living now on less than 10 square kilometers. So they were rapidly squeezed, gradually 
concentrated in areas, <coughs> and the, this process had process had created the slums. Now, that was not enough for the Israeli polit politics. They added to, to it the so-called security apartheid, whatever call it, wall surrounding East Jerusalem, separating it from the West Bank. That was not enough even for the Israelis. They decided that uh, they issued a law called the law of the center of life. So if you, Jerusalem, I decide to live in a neighborhood outside the municipal border of Jerusalem, you lose your accommodation right in, in Jerusalem. So you become a West Banker. And because people are attached to their home, uh, attached to the services in their home, to the schools, to the hospitals, the socially, social network. So a lot of people had to abandon their houses in the neighborhoods outside the wall, especially in Ram, Bahit al-Barid, Bernabala, Azariya, Abu Dis, and to come back to live inside the apartheid wall. That added more concentrations in the, in the neighborhood, especially in the poor neighborhoods. Because if you do not have a house in Jerusalem and you used to live in the suburbs outside the wall, uh, you, not, you lose your property there because you have to, to, to leave it empty. And then you come to Jerusalem, you, you look for any hole, any cave to live in it in order to protect your rights uh, uh, in your city. So Silwan became very crowded. The refugee camp of Shafat became very crowded. And so the process of, I'll call it Islamization, a process of East Jerusalem began in late 80s. And now it is crowned. When you cross that area of uh, Dera Butur and Silwan, uh, you couldn't imagine that such a thing exists in Jerusalem. And that happened under the Israeli planning and under the Israeli uh, uh, supervising of the city. I remember my city before 1967 as a petty bourgeois city, middle-class city. Sorry, it was not the most beautiful city. It was not the richest city in the world, but it was a beautiful city. And uh, people used to have enough space to survive and to live in it. Now we, we are really suffocated in the city where you have uh, empty land, which is reserved for settlements. Uh, at the same time, you do not have any land left in East Jerusalem to build the new neighborhoods. Uh, uh, is, the Jews are building new neighborhoods, uh, uh, and we are denied this, the same right uh, in our land. So you can't imagine if a, a country will confiscate 87% of your city. So uh, uh, the rest is already populated. It was already populated before. And uh, then you have to, re uh, to populate it above and above the new layers of population in the, in the same lo location. Uh, therefore, uh, the Israeli statistics are saying that about 80% of the Palestinians in East Jerusalem are living under the poverty line. Uh, so you could imagine also the social problems of poverty line, uh, drugs, uh, 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 by family violence, uh, 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 sexual violations, et cetera, et cetera. These are phenomena well known by sociologists if you are living in, a, in Islam. 
This is the creation of the Israeli policy after more than 50 years of, of uh, occupying us. I would say sometimes I hear from Israeli friends saying, well, this is partly because of the Arab culture, but it's the same city before 1967 was in Arab culture too, uh, why it was not so deteriorated. Uh, Arab culture was under your control for more than 50 years. You were steering everything, Israelis. You were uh, uh, controlling my daily life, my daily movement, the kind of food that I eat, the kind of theater that I'm allowed to see. That was all the time in, in hands of, of, of the Israeli government. So I am a product of the Israeli policies. I am not a product of the uh, Arab culture. Uh, living in Islams is not part of the Arab culture. That remind me, when I was growing up in Italy, and I remember I grew up in the north, and so I would hear uh, people complaining about the south and say, well, you know, that's part of a culture. <coughs> the reality is that you had all of these people living in slums, particularly in cities like Naples, where in the 80s they really had large issues with this kind of, you know, problems of overcrowding. And, you know, it was so ingrained that immediately you would say, yeah, of course, it's their culture. No, it's the policies. That, that's what creates planning. that. Exactly. Poor urban planning. Uh, the inability to give people opportunities for better housing, educations, uh, you know, in general. And then obviously people just say, well, that's their culture. Uh, and I remember hearing uh, particularly Western tourists, and I must say mostly Americans, sometimes around Jerusalem, pointing to the direction of, of Silwan when visiting particularly the East Jerusalem. Oh, look at the Arabs. It's like, this is their culture, right? But what they don't understand and see is that, no, this is the byproduct of Israeli policies. That's what they created. Remember uh, Silwan before 1967, I was living there. Most of the houses have used to have gardens full of trees and roses. I, this is not the paradise, but it was a very beautiful neighborhood. Uh, 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 you could have enough places for everything. Gardens, parks used to be in, in Silwan. People were, of course, they destroyed all of that because, because they do not have choices. Uh, did not have, have a re now in Jerusalem, People are dividing their apartments into two and three parts in order to accommodate their ch uh, married ch children. You know, the, uh, I said 80% are living below the poverty line. And the rent of an apartment in East Jerusalem today is above $1,500, uh, $1, $1, $1,500 uh, per month. And the income of the 80% of the Jerusalemites is less than that amount. So you can, you can imagine what should people do. So if you have an apartment of 100 square meter, you divide it into two parts so your married son can live in, a, in, in part and you will continue to live in a part. This is the process now. And I, I know a lot of middle class, not a lower class, middle class people who are doing it uh, uh, to solve their problems. There is no one single governmental uh, housing project in East Jerusalem. So everything is done by people and you have to invest a lot of money. If you want to buy an apartment in East Jerusalem, an apartment in a building, you know, 
you have to pay at least half a million dollars in cash because we do not have banking system. We cannot take, take credits in Israeli banks because if I sign with the Israeli bank, so if I fail to pay the money, then they will send the settlers. So I do not do it. And the Palestinian banks do not give us credits because they do not have jurisdiction over us. So we are locked in between, between the chairs. And uh, the problem is going deeper and deeper. We need today in East Jerusalem more than 30,000 apartments today, not tomorrow. We need 1,500 classrooms today, not tomorrow. Uh, but this is after 50 years of Israeli control. Roberto, this is a very uh, stupid politics, even for the Israeli interest. Look, uh, uh, I mean, the Islamization of East Jerusalem uh, is a bomb that will explode in there and uh, in their faces and our faces too. Uh, if you cannot treat your neighbor in this way, because the problems of your neighbor will come to your house, you cannot block the sewage of your neighbor because this sewage will blow in your face too. I think this is a very stupid, fanatical politics. It comes out of uh, racist ideology from one side, from other, from, from our side. They do not see us at all. We are not there. They deny our existence. So their planning for us is a planning for no, nobody is nobody is living there. So I don't have to plan for him. I don't have to assist them. But this is really a very stupid politics. Now we are about forty percent of of so-called United Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, and the trend is clear. We are adding one percent every day, every year. So next year we are. 41%. Can you imagine a, a, a country in the, in the world that considered 40% of its citizens as enemies? And you plan for your en enemies? This is a very stupid policy. And uh, uh, this is uh, exactly the problem that, or, or, I will say, uh, uh, the, the deep hole that the Israelis living in it, and they're pulling us with them down in, in this hole. Uh, I, I do not think that this is a very a clever colonial uh, politics. I think this is a very stupid, fanatical, uh, uh, racist policy, but there will be a price for it, very high price. I was for that. The Israelis were implementing this policy, thinking that, well, if we create a slum, Palestinians will leave because they don't want to live there. And I, I, and I think they underestimated attachment feelings, the fact that Jerusalem is home, and so obviously people chose not to go, but rather to leave in these conditions. And you're right, this is gonna explode in their hands because they, they simply didn't plan for this to happen. I, I think uh, colonialists or occupational is becoming sometimes blind and do not understand the occupied. I think uh, colonialists never understood the, the colonized, not here and not else, elsewhere. Uh, and their orientalism and uh, uh, their studies of the Palestinian society is a catastrophe. It's uh, uh, not because they do not have good researchers, they have good researchers, but, uh, but uh, they, the researchers cannot understand the colonized uh, in a proper way. Uh, you know, it's uh, the, the conflict here is 
national conflict about land. And we understood uh, in 1948 that don't leave your home regardless. I remember in 1967, my father said, we were 11 children. He said, uh, I am ready to die with my 11 children and not to leave my home. Uh, some people are very uh, attached to their, we are not more attached than any other people uh, to their homes. You know, people in general, they are attached to their homes. But also we do not have uh, alternatives. You know, uh, I have uh, to remind you that in the 60s and the 70s, we used to have uh, alternative to go to the Gulf states to work there. We were very welcome and need, very well needed. Uh, today we are not needed in anywhere and we are not welcomed in anywhere. So we are staying here. We are not moving uh, anywhere. Uh, uh, Israel has only one choice, is really to, uh, to reach settlement with us. They do not have any other choice. We are not going to be expelled. We will not allow that. They, they do not have enough force to do that too. And uh, they, they cannot push us to anywhere. So the question is uh, what they want. Do they want to have one third of or more of their capital as a slum, uh, uh, which we will export to them uh, all of the problems, including uh, drugs, violence, uh, uh, aside from the national compact, you know, these are just my, uh, other issues which are very dangerous to the Israelis. Uh, uh, now, uh, the Israelis have to face this problem. I think uh, until now, they are living in denial phase, uh, denying the existence of the problem. Uh, recently, when the Sheikh Jarrah uh, story, Babel, uh, uh, Damascus Gate story and Aksamos story suddenly explode, uh, I think some of them worked up. They are not, uh, did not influence the Israeli politics yes, yet, but uh, suddenly somebody opened their eyes. What are we doing there? If I take tomorrow a bus of Israelis to East Jerusalem in a tour, not in the holy sites, and not in the beauty of the old city, just to take them to Silwan and to show them what is going on there, <clears throat> I'm sure that if they are Likud, Likudnik Israelis, they will be very surprised. They will not believe what they are going to see. Uh, they, and it was done in their names. This was a fascinating talk. And since we are reaching the end uh, of our conversation, I want to just ask you a couple more things. And one is very much about your work. So you're an archaeologist. And I was wondering about your work as an archaeologist around Jerusalem. What is your personal sort of story in terms of work? What, what is that you are maybe aiming to find or what you think was your contribution to understand the archaeological history of Jerusalem? Yeah. First of all, I'm, uh, I was trained as an archaeologist, but really never worked as an archaeologist very well because I was, I've graduated in a time where I couldn't practice archaeology, uh, just theoretical archaeology, because... Uh, I didn't want to work with the Israeli uh, 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 military uh, archaeological department of Beit El. And I didn't want to work also with the Israeli department of, of antiquities. So I chose theoretical archaeology. And later I moved to cultural heritage, architecture, restoration of historic buildings in that direction. Uh, I am more engaged in uh, documentation of cultural heritage. 
uh, I was engaged more or less in every documentation uh, uh, project in the West Bank and East Jerusalem in the last three decades. Some of them, I led them, uh, for instance, I've led the documentation of 50,000 buildings, historical buildings in the West Bank, published in three beautiful volumes. Uh, uh, and uh, I'm combining also different disciplines together, uh, uh, history of art, archeology, span history, and archeology span together. Uh, re, uh, now in the process of publication, is a beautiful book about the Nativity Church of Bethlehem. Uh, uh, you can imagine that there is no one book uh, on this church in Arabic. Uh, so I'm uh, I produced a very huge volume, uh, which will be published by Palestine Studies, uh, Institute of Palestine Studies. Uh, 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 and because I was a member of the committee of supervising the restoration of the Nativity Church, I, in the last 10 years, I got the chance to touch every millimeter uh, of the church and to collect materials on its history and archaeology. Uh, uh, it's fascinating uh, uh, to work on, the, on this beautiful basilica, which is not only spiritually very important, but from archaeological and architectural point of view, uh, uh, one of the most important basilicas in the world. Uh, just uh, two months ago, I published a book on Lifta, uh, which is a, a volume about, uh, I will say, history of, of the site, the archaeology of the site, but most uh, important, the, the architecture of Lifta. Well documented, or every standing building was documented, uh, uh, drawn, photographed very well as a historical document of this very important uh, uh, site. You know, uh, Lifta in itself is a very sad story. Uh, uh, you know, after 1948, uh, uh, the Israelis bulldozed approximately between 450 and 500 Palestinian villages and towns. Uh, uh, just bulldozed them. Uh, on some of them, they built new Jewish uh, buildings and houses. And on other, they, built, uh, they uh, planted forests in order to eliminate the existence of these, of these villages and towns. Uh, uh, Lifta was, part of Lifta was part of uh, the municipal Jerusalem before 1948, part of the mandatory Jerusalem. So uh, Israeli Jews, immigrants mainly from Yemen and Kurdistan were brought and settled in early fifties in, in the houses of Lifta. So that prevented the destruction of Lifta as the other uh, villages. You know, in, in, in West Jerusalem until uh, uh, Ramli, uh, 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 you know, tens of villages were destroyed. The only villages that survived was Abu Ghosh uh, uh, with its population. And Lifta, uh, uh, because of the, uh, of the use of the buildings. And the buildings, of, most of the buildings of Lifta were very sophisticated, very beautiful houses. The landscape in front of Lifta towards the west is wonderful. It has a very beautiful water spring, very rich and famous water, water spring. Uh, the slopes of the mountains around Lifta were very beautifully planted with olive groves and, and, and figs and, and, and citrus. 
that was a very ideal place to settle people in it. This prevented the destruction of major part of Lifta, not every part. Uh, out of, uh, of uh, more than 400 houses in Lifta, uh, just a few dozens had survived. But these few dozens are the core of the village, the historic core of the village. And you could imagine the, the village itself is a very ancient village. Uh, uh, there are enough evidences of the existence of the village since the Bronze Age and continued until, until today. Uh, and you have uh, uh, remarkable remains from the Crusader period. You have remains from, from the Ayyubid period. A lot of rem remains from the Mamluk period and then uh, until the 20th century. It was a very rich village. 3,000 uh, people were living in the village before 1948. Their numbers today is more than, than 30,000 living mostly in Jerusalem and Ramallah, but elsewhere too. Uh, also, the, the question of Lifta is very similar to the question of Sheikh Jarrah. You know, uh, part of the Sheikh Jarrah was land of Lifta. Major parts of the Sheikh Jarrah was Lifta land, belonged to Lifta before 1948. So some of these Liftawis, people of Lifta, moved from their village Lifta to Sheikh Jarrah. And you have now part of it called Lifta neighborhood. So a lot of them are refugees living in East Jerusalem and in Ramallah, where their village mostly intact. They could, they go, they are ready to go tomorrow uh, to restore it and to live in it. But, and a lot of them are carrying Jerusalem ID, and some of them even have Israeli citizenship. They are prevented from going there, and the Israelis are insisting on building on the, on the ruins of Lifta, on the land of Lifta, a new neighborhood. Uh, which will be a very expensive and a very rich neighborhood. And the, the Liftawis are obliged to live in refugee camps as well as in rented houses in the city. So this is uh, what I'm interested in uh, recently. I will call it living archaeology. Well, it is indeed living archaeology. And Lifta is such a fascinating case because I always think about people driving particularly from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem on road number one. And you cannot, but you have to see Lifta. And, and I always wonder what people think about it, whether they understand that actually people live there and that there's an ongoing battle ab about that village. But I always had the feeling that, as you mentioned earlier, the Palestinians are invisible. And so Lifta is invisible too. There is no understanding, no no idea about the history of this amazing town because it's it's beautiful even if it's empty. Yes, uh, you know, Lifta, I don't want to, to talk much, but I will tell you, Lifta is, a, aside from politics and from right of return and of people, it's an example of integration of a village in the landscape. It's beautiful to trace the history of architecture of several, uh, of several periods. Uh, it is an example how the countryside was about before 1948. It's an example of the level of living where Palestinian living in before 1948. It's not a, a land without people. It was not a, a, a land of, uh, of uh, uh, very poor villagers. It was not a land of Bedouins. It was a land of very cultivated people. And Lifta is an eyewitness 
of that period and of that cultural product. Uh, you know, it's uh, uh, if when you go there, you will say, well, uh, uh, that cannot be uh, true, uh, that the Palestinian villagers were living in such houses, were very rich and very uh, uh, beautiful houses. And, uh, uh, you know, you expect that villagers were living in huts, etc. But Lifta is an, an example of the standard of living and the culture that the, the people were living in before 1948. So it's, it is representing the catastrophe in different, uh, in different levels. This was Professor Nazmi Aljube, Associate Professor of History and Archaeology at Birzeit University. Nazmi, thank you so much for this very honest and important interview. Thank you so much. Pleasure, Roberto. Good luck. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks and I'll see you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.